I know a lot of you are seeking a higher quality of life, and I don't know anyone who wants the quality of their life to get worse. But that can happen when you're stuck in a rocky relationship or going through a difficult separation and divorce. My name's Liz Rankin, and I've created the Separation Fix with the intention of turning you away from that mess and in the direction of a brighter future. I hope you find this episode interesting, and thanks for listening. of interviews about the different pathways available to someone who's trying to sort through issues relating to separation and divorce. I think that mediation is one of the most well-known of these options, and today I feel very privileged to be discussing mediation with Margaret Holsmith of HDR, Holsmith Dispute Resolution, a mediation and professional development practice. I consider Margaret to be a bit of a mediation Jedi having conducted more than 30,000 hours of mediation. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you, Liz. Margaret is based in Western Australia, just outside the beautiful city of Perth. There's simply not enough time for me to list all of Margaret's professional experience and achievements. So I've chosen a few highlights. From 2007 to 2017, Margaret was the chair of the Resolution Institute, previously known as LEADER. And for those of you not familiar with the Resolution Institute, it's the largest dispute resolution organization across Australia and New Zealand with more than 3,000 members. And, of course, a great place to start if you are looking for a mediator. Margaret was the convener for the working group that developed the standards for the National Mediation Accreditation System in Australia. And she continues to assess, train, and supervise mediators. And finally, Margaret has edited three of the four editions of one of the preeminent textbooks of the profession, Mediating with Families, as well as reviewing the 2018 edition. And finally, a comment about Margaret's more than 30,000 hours of mediation. For those of you familiar with the work of Malcolm Gladwell, who says that it takes 10,000 hours to be a success in a field, Those 30,000 hours have to mean that Margaret is a master mediator three times over. So now that I've introduced you, I want to explain in the Australian context how mediators are referred to as family dispute resolution practitioners or FDRPs. I think that's important that people working and dealing with the family law system understand that term. It means you've got special training, accreditation, and you're registered. But for the purpose of this interview, I'm just going to refer to mediators. Is that okay with you, Margaret? That's fine. Okay. Margaret, let's dive in now. How would you define mediation? Well, um, thank you for your kind introduction. Um, uh, It's interesting to think back on all of those aspects of of my long career. Defining mediation... uh, and I'm defining it for family law and all sorts of areas, is tricky. I think I might have more of a description than a definition in my mind. I'll give you my description and keep it as short as I can. Um, I think of mediation as being a structured and systematic process that's managed in an even-handed way by someone who is accredited and currently registered in whatever field of mediation, in this case, family law. 
and it's a facilitated process in which the participants contribute initially by speaking for themselves and by listening and then by speaking constructively together to come up with some agreements if agreements are appropriate. I like that definition because I think it is descriptive and explains the important elements of mediation. So I'd like to break that down a bit, but I first want to get into the other really important issue for people thinking about mediation. What do you see as the benefits of mediation? The benefits of mediation, I think, is that mediation speaks for itself. So in other forms of dispute resolution, typically you have other people or rules and regulations speaking for you and other participants. In mediation, it's all about speaking for yourself and what's more being facilitated to speak as constructively for yourself as you can and to listen as constructively as you can to other participants. So the benefits of mediation, it could be said, are that people speak for themselves. And listen for themselves. And listen for themselves. In fact, you know, I'd extend that and say uh, people speak for themselves and listen for everyone concerned. So in family law mediations, you might be speaking for yourself and you're listening to the other participant on behalf of yourself and any children or other people who might be involved. I find it interesting that you've chosen to focus on the listening aspect because I'm sure you've seen and probably very many uh, listeners would have seen the infographics where they compare the different types of pathways through family law. And the ones that are always featured are it's faster, um, it's less expensive, you have more control of the process. But I don't think I have seen this aspect of listening. Why do you see that as so important? I think that um, if you go to mediation, you're either consciously or you're, you're implicitly saying, I'm willing to consider changing something. In fact, probably if you go to any other form of dispute resolution, you're implicitly saying that because in mediation, it's up to the participants to decide where they'll go, what agreements they'll come to, it's absolutely vital that listening is a major part of the communication process so that together participants can create something that will work uniquely for them. As a quick aside, as you mentioned, I've mediated over 30,000 hours. I've never seen two agreements which are the same. That's that's remarkable because you'd think that the issues are fairly similar. Parenting. You would. Mm. Indeed. When you write them on the board by way of an agenda, um, they look like a mediation that you might have done many, many, many times. However, I can assure you that I've never thought, oh, yes, I know what this is all about because it's the uniqueness of the participants that distinguishes the uh, one mediation from another. And also, too, that, that leads to the issue of um, the benefit of the creativity of the process. If you've never seen an agreement that's the same, that's obviously a very creative process and people with you are working towards something that really suits their individual situation. 
Yes, yeah. That, that's my impression that um, that what, you know, we were talking about the benefits of mediation. The benefits are, I suppose, as we said, that people speak for themselves. They also agree for themselves. That's if they decide to reach an agreement. Or one agreement can be that you uh, participants decide not to agree at this stage. Or an agreement might be that they'll take their differences somewhere else and have someone else make a decision. That in itself is an agreement. And from your point of view as a mediator, how do you feel when that happens if they don't reach an agreement, when that does happen? Well, (laughs) with my mediator's outlook on life, I think of them as having reached an agreement. They've agreed not to keep mediating or agreed to go somewhere else or agreed to postpone mediation Uh, for the time being. Sometimes when mediation occurs, when things are in quite a state of flux, people say, look, let's just keep going as we are for now and come back and make some longer-term agreements down the track. And all of these aspects, I think, advantages, benefits of mediation. The typical ones that you mentioned of it being faster and um, less costly, it may be faster. I think... If you're going to talk about the time element, you're really saying it's going to be at the time and at the pace that suits the participants rather than getting into a competitive view of faster or slower than some other process. Well, that has the advantage, once again, of um, the control of you have in the mediation scenario versus other options that you're controlling the pace. Yes, yes. Contributing to controlling the pace really, because there are different perspectives to be had. The mediator might be going on leave um, and one participant typically would like it done quite fast, another would like the mediation done at a slower pace. So um, it's not simple control. It's, let's say, input into enriching agreement. Flexibility, yes, yep. And what I've noticed in mediation once um, people are listening you can see a shift and greater insight into the other person. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, my thoughts on on the listening and the speaking are that the mediator provides a vital role of enabling people to listen when they're listening and speak when they're speaking. Typically, apparently, when one of us starts to speak, the other starts to get their response ready within about the first three seconds. In mediation by participant, Fred, we might call him, um, saying what he needs to say to Mary, the other participant, but saying it through the mediator, Fred knows that all he has to do is talk and Mary knows that all she has to do is listen because after Fred talks... I, in my role as mediator, I'm going to check in with Fred and see uh, whether I've heard him in the way that he intended to be heard, and that gives Mary a chance to check her listening, and then, of course, it'll flip across and Mary will speak and Fred gets the chance to listen. So I think that um, the pace, it comes back to that word you mentioned again, the the pace and the task, the pace is whatever works for the people, and the task is one task at a time. Just reflecting on something you said about one person speaking um, and then you are 
reframing it or, or trying to rephrase it and repeat it to the other person. I think that relates to another benefit too, well with, as well with mediation, because sometimes it's just the person who's conveying the message and a mediator being able to repeat it sometimes, possibly it makes it easier for the other person to accept the message. That's an interesting addition to makes it easier for the person to listen and perhaps easier to accept because it comes in a monotone and in a voice which doesn't have meaning. Can I just come back to something that um, I mentioned and then you referred to, and that is that when Fred speaks, I speak back to Fred. I, I would very rarely, if ever, say to Mary, so what Fred was saying is such and such. It's more that I'm checking in with Fred to let Fred know that I have heard or what I have heard and giving Fred the chance to say, oh, if that's what you heard, it wasn't quite what I meant or, yep, that, what, that is what I've meant. Well, that's another, another advantage, the process of it too, because often in the heat of the separation, um, there's not a lot of listening often going on and often people don't have the opportunity to say what they want to say without being interrupted. Absolutely. The number of times that people have said in a mediation, oh, that's new to me, when let's say Mary has spoken and said something in response to a question that I have asked and Fred said, well, that's new to me, I didn't know that, and Mary has said, well, I've said it many times. Of course, we, all of us can only listen to the to our capacity and in separation I think people's listening capacity gets overloaded. So, yes, there'll be a lot that hasn't been heard. Then there'll be a lot that has been heard in a hurtful way or a worrying way or a sad way. And mediation's an opportunity to say what needs to be said in a heartfelt way and maybe an emotional way if necessary and a way which is easier to listen. There's a lot then for you to do then as a mediator, Margaret, when you're in that room. <laughs> There is a lot going on. One of the things mediators don't get into is the content. There's a quip about mediation that says that uh, the mediator manages the process and the participants manage the content. There's no brain space left in a mediator who's managing the content and managing the process well to manage any of the content. But whether there is or there isn't, I'm speaking entirely for myself here, um, it's, it does, there's so much to think about in the process that it does leave the responsibility of the content with the participants. So the participants are choosing what's going to be discussed that day. Yes. The mediator is assisting them to choose, but it's absolutely the choice of the participants. So would you say your primary role as a mediator then is to control the process? I would say uh, my resistance is to that word control so um, if I can put that as my primary role is to create the circumstances which will suit the particular participants to make the most of the mediation and then yes probably as a second step that is managing the process in addition 
to um, the benefits that we talked about, some of those I think will be new to listeners. I think that there's also misconceptions about what mediation is. I don't know. I would like to talk about that for a few minutes. Would you like to list some of the misconceptions or preconceptions you find people have? A major one is what is the word itself. Meditation is what people sometimes think mediation is. Uh, More so many years ago, but even so now, um, people will still think that they're coming to meditation and that's that's a pity. Mind you, for me, uh, when I drive past a new premises that is offering meditation, I tend to first think to myself, oh, a new mediation practice has set up. <laughs> then I check my reading so I can understand it going the other way. Um, so th- uh, the most common misconception of mediation is probably that people are coming to me for me to tell them what I think on the balance between two opposing positions. Mary might think one thing, that the children should do two sports each season, and Fred might think that the children should do one sport each season or any number of different perspectives and that I will listen to each of them and then say, well, they should each do one and a half sports per season. Um, And just the very example shows that that's ridiculous. So what happens instead, it's an unusual sort of process in that I want to hear from each parent, from Fred and from Mary and sometimes from the children as well, what it is that's important to them about their extracurricular activities and having heard what's important and clarified that with everyone, then together building a picture of what they'll do for their seasonal sports. So it's creating a new approach for a newly structured family. So you're not a judge, what you're looking at? Not at all. Not at all. So what you're looking at there is that when they're honing in on the positions, you're trying to expand their view into what their interests are? Absolutely. Very succinctly put. Yeah. So um, I'm interested in, if you like, lots and lots of interests and from those building some options and from those building an agreement. Would you be able to give an, another example of something would be quite positional that might be quite typical in a family law matter and reframe it as an interest so listeners could understand the importance of this aspect of mediation? There are lots of examples. Um, one might be drop off some pickup times and um, and parents tend to have a clear idea of what happens, say, after school, between after school and dinner. And some parents are fairly laid back about that and some parents are fairly particular. So some parents believe that children come in, have something to eat, get changed perhaps, and do their homework. And then after that is free time and 
other parents um, say the children have been at school all day doing schoolwork, they have a play in the afternoon and then they do their homework before bedtime, after tea perhaps. Um, so what I'd be interested in is asking each of the parents so, so that they can each hear what the other says, what's important to you about homework? So I would typically ask um, each parent to talk about what's important to them about homework, what's important to them about free playtime after school, what's important to them about a regular schedule for an afternoon, what's important to them about a flexible schedule in the afternoon, what do the children do after school on particular days now, um, what do the children think about, what do the parents think the children think about, um, the sorts of things I've just asked about. And I've rattled through a series of questions there quite quickly, but you can imagine that each one leads to quite some discussion. And having done that, I will be letting Mary and Fred each know what I've heard them say and ask them to correct me if I've not quite heard accurately. And then there's a whole lot of material on the table for moving on to some options for what the children's afternoons can look like. Well, that's such a massive shift then. I imagine that people, you know, well, my experience as well, are people coming in with their position and with that communication, they're getting at the interests. And that's such a good foundation for after. Mm -hmm. after the mediation, you know, by having a greater understanding with this person you might not have been talking to for years, possibly, real conversations, so talking about what's important, um, and also, I guess, clearing up a lot of misunderstandings. Absolutely. I agree. One of the paradoxical things about interests is that you've probably, Fred's probably got interests similar to Mary's. Mary has interests similar to Fred's. The outcomes they see quite differently. Each of them will be concerned quite likely that the children do get their homework done and that they get it done happily and constructively. So their interests might be happy kids after school and yet they interpret how to get happy kids after school differently. Um, interests um, would typically be uh, efficiency, um, that the afternoon runs efficiently. Typically, parents are interested or have an interest in their children's safety. So uh, they also have an interest in their children's development. So some parents who are, have an interest in development say, I like to encourage my kids to roam far and wide after school. And um, other parents say, I'm concerned about my child's safety and their independence and I like them to stay within a few houses of my house after school. Um, others will say I want my child to be really well, well developed socially and interpret that quite differently. Does that mean playing with the children you already know or from families that you know? And to others, it'll mean going far afield. And so what you can see is I'm developing a whole lot of options around the similar sorts of interests. And then there'll be people who have quite different interests. Some will say education, waste of space. Others will say education, crucial for their future. 
So another um, misconception I find people have about mediation when they contact me is that it's similar to counselling. Has that been your experience? Yes, I think that um, people know what they know and um, when a relationship is troubled, people will often go to counselling and benefit from counselling and uh, so naturally they come to mediation with some preconceptions. So because I and all other FDRPs, family dispute resolution practitioners or mediators as we're referring to them um, as we talk, because we're obliged under the regulations to meet with each participant separately beforehand, we do get an opportunity to explain the process. In fact, we're required to. And I tend to ask people what they'd like, uh, what they expect from me and what they'd like from me in the mediation. And the reason I ask them that is that if what they would like is for me to provide some therapeutic interventions like counselling, then that gives me an opportunity to make sure when it's a private session that I explain what my role actually is and distinguish it from counselling. So in a nutshell, a really um, overgeneralised nutshell perhaps, counselling tends to be therapeutic. In other words, it's people are committing to making a change and it often has a past focus component, although equally as often it doesn't. And it's a different sort of relationship between the professional and the client in counselling. Well, thank you for explaining that. The next thing I wanted to talk about is a certain amount of resistance people seem to have in the community. This is an example of the sort of thing I have heard over the years, and I'll I'll pretend I'm this resistant client. Margaret, I'm sure you are the most amazing mediator, but with all respect, it would be useless in my situation. My wife, she wants our two sons to live with her five days a week, and there's no way. The boys need their dad, and she is a crap mom. And we've been arguing about it for three months, and I'm not going to budge. So, no, it's not for me. Well, um, what I hear is I, I do hear comments like like um, the one you've just read um, or remembered or both. Um, what I'll tend to say is, is um, I'll work with a person's resistance and I emphasise that it's their decision whether they come to mediation or not whether they come, when they go to mediation, if at all, and um, who they actually see. So I might say something along the lines of, um, Fred, it sounds to me as if you and Mary are well into the mediation stage of coming up with some options for your sons and their living arrangements because that, that is what I hear. They're talking about where the boys are going to live and I'll also say to Fred, it's sounding as if you're feeling quite excluded from your sons with the current arrangements as they are, and they might have been intended to be temporary arrangements and they're somehow starting to look 
permanent as they go into the three-month stage. And then I'll talk a bit about the process of mediation and how you can develop a whole lot of options and then select from among them together, whereas if you develop one option at a time, which in this case is the boys live with their mother, then it's much harder to come up with a creative solution that fits for both parents. If you think about it, any time you want to do something, if you say, shall we dine out north of the river? No, don't want to dine out north of the river. Shall we dine out south of the river? No, don't want to dine out south of the river. It'll be too busy at this time of day. Do we want to um, get takeaway and have it at the park? No, it'll be windy. Whereas if you say, well, shall we dine out, the options are north of the river, south of the river or down at the park then those are the three options and you can make a considered decision and you're much more likely to get a yes and it's exactly the same in mediation. So it sounds as much more expansive. Yes, yeah. So I'm, what I'm doing is reframing what Fred's had to say into you're looking at one option at the moment, I'll assist you to look at lots. What about someone who's listening, listening, who's sort of interested in mediation but says, look, Margaret, we can't communicate any longer. Um, we haven't spoken for a decade or oh, we yell. If we don't talk in, we yell. And then if we have to communicate, it's um, text or we pass messages through the kids. So, no, there's no point in mediating. Yes, um, that's another a common perspective and of course if you haven't been communicating face to face for 10 years and if you have got things working through text message and maybe the occasional email why would you put it at risk is that what I think that's what you're mentioning that people might be thinking we've it's not good but we've got it going now and got it working I tend to think that what I'm hearing is a fear factor of going backwards and um, and, the, and the fear would be an authentic sort of fear. So I will be explaining to people how, how mediation works, much in the same way that you and I were talking earlier about whatever is said going through the mediator um, and the mediator providing some sort of filter if it's needed. And I have to say it's rarely needed, but occasionally it is most of all the mediator providing some time for people to listen well and speak well, in other words, to say what they want to say. And when I explain the communication pattern and demonstrate it, people seem to be further at more at ease than they were when they thought perhaps I was going to sit and observe shouting I, I can truly say that the number of times I've heard shouting in a mediation would be, to be honest, I can't think of any particular time, but let, let's say let's say four or five times. It's, it's a very, it's, it comes back to the calmness of the structure and the systematic approach that I mentioned when you asked me about my definition of mediation at the start. It's conducive to taking things one step at a time and saying what you need to say to be authentic and hearing 
authentically. So, however, I don't speak like that until people have seen it in action. I just explain the process. I just have a few more questions. Um, the final one about resistance to mediation would be, I don't trust my ex and I'm really ignorant about our financial situation. Look, again, that's a very familiar situation. I may well mention that to people and say that this is a concern that I often hear because most families have a division of labour of some sort. Someone does the finances, someone else does another aspect and then they share other aspects. So I will again go to explaining the process for financial settlement, which means that I'll get started by asking Mary and Fred to alternately tell me what it is that is, makes up their property and to talk a bit about each item. So someone might talk about the house and someone might talk about the shed that's out the back and someone else might talk about car number one and there might be a car number two and there could be a horse float or collection of surfboards and each person talks about each item without mentioning anything to do with values. And then I'll take people through in tiny steps how I develop a spreadsheet on the board of possible values. In other words, any answer that anybody gives to any question about what they own is correct. And from that I'll develop a things-to-do list and people can go and find the information that they need. So... Learning about finances, your own finances, is one of the aspects of family law mediation. So in the process, they can have a break in the mediation, go off for a couple of weeks if necessary, and gather those facts. Indeed, they can do that and or come along to the mediation with their accountant or financial advisor or a savvy friend or whomever they need to be there. They need to give, participants need to give tonnes of notice that they would like to be accompanied by someone and I check that person out with the other participant and I make a decision about which support people, professional support people and personal support people will be in the room. So an agreement can be reached only if each participant has an absolutely thorough rigorous understanding of the meaning of the agreement for themselves and their children and, in fact, for the other participant. And, Margaret, when you do mediations, do you often involve other people in that in the room as well as the participants? Is that quite common in your work? Yes, in my work it is. I really like people to have a support person, a personal support person and a professional support person. The personal support person... Uh, needs to be someone that each participant is satisfied um, will maintain confidentiality and I have no trouble people people know that if their former partner is feeling supported that the mediation will go better for everyone concerned for themselves and for their children um, and the professional support person might in the first session be a lawyer in the second session, an accountant in the third session on 
the children might be um, a child psychologist perhaps. That's unusual to have three different support people, but just by way of example. And uh, I guess what I'm saying there is tuning into your point that people might need to go away and do some research. The way I mediate is I book three three-hour sessions about a week apart and that way people can do their thinking between the sessions. I think of the mediation sessions as catalysts for doing some thinking and getting some new information rather than mediating all the way through and people having to make decisions, perhaps when they're tired, perhaps under pressure and perhaps ill-informed. So, Margaret, I want to read something from your Twitter account, which I think has how many entries? Would you know, Margaret, how many entries you've got on that? Oh, let's say 2,600 perhaps. Uh, <laughs> entries and about and um, over 1,000 followers. I find it very uplifting. It's not just about mediation. I find it very uplifting. And I think for people who are separating, um, it's quite a joyous place. I'm just going to read you the quote now. Mediation is a dispute resolution process to use when at the back of your mind, there is a kernel of imagining of a future respectful relationship with other participants. Would you speak to that quote and and especially how it's related to separating adults who are so overwhelmed by negative emotions, the idea of a future respectful relationship would seem a world away. Yes, yes, I'm sure it does. And yet, you know, every one of my tweets is about mediation and every one of them, nearly every one of them, is me debriefing myself on a mediation. So in other words, I've learnt this from participants that um, that underneath or maybe not even underneath, people are looking to have a respectful and peaceful relationship with participants. Usually they have had such a relationship already. They know what it looks like. They want to get to that in a different shape at this point of their lives. So the kernel, well, all of that quote that I, that, that you read and that I wrote um, is reflecting back to participants what I see. And my evidence for that is, or some evidence, is that numerous people tell me that after they've been for their initial separate session that I referred to earlier and had a chat with me about the circumstances and listened to me talk about the process and answer their questions, almost always people say, oh, the conflict's just about gone now just because we've committed to mediation and are ready to get going. So I think that also tells me that there's something there looking for a way to resolve this respectfully. Well, that seems to fit nicely into a conversation I was having with a mediation colleague quite recently. And that person told me they had a fairly regular stream of clients of people who had had a determination by the court and now wanted to go to mediation because they weren't happy with the outcome of the hearing. Yeah. I'm, f I'm familiar with that 
Um, I think that going to the court perhaps provides some safety and some certainty yes, and yes. someone to take account of um, a ruling that you might not like, but you can the, any angst can be directed toward the judicial officer. Um, and I think that lots of participants actually don't want to deliver any more angst toward the other participant. However, they're sort of trapped in a cycle of that. So I can understand wanting a determination. However, when you think about a determination, it's, it's a difficult sort of process in that it only deals with the legal issues and there are a lot more types of issues than legal issues when it comes to families and children. And it only deals with the children and the family at that particular point when perhaps Mary is um, working for a government department and Fred is running a small business and within a year Fred might be working for a government department and Mary might be running a small business and the children will be another year older. And a year when you're older, my age, is nothing but a year when you change from being six years old to seven years old is a significant percentage of your life, rather like me changing from 60 years old to 70 years old. That's a little way off. Um, so um, so I, I can, yeah, I, I think that, um, that there's a place for determinations, particularly when things are high conflict and there's a place for mediation where parents make up their own minds about how the family will run. Because I think that's a point we haven't made yet, perhaps. The family is the family is the family. It's just the living arrangements that changes. I agree with everything you said there. And I do, I mean, the point of this series of interviews is just to look at the different pathways and they all have merit for different situations. Hmm. But I was interested about, you know, the changing circumstances, particularly, I guess, as children change, that, um, you know, the decision may not suit that family anymore. That is a family. That is a family. Mm. And another beautiful quote on your Twitter account was by C.S. Lewis, which was, you cannot go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. How do you find this quote relating to mediation? Well, mediation is future-focused and it's hard to blame or deny or minimise or do any of those sorts of things about a future that you haven't yet had. Future is almost by definition optimistic. Would you agree? Yes. Just the word is optimistic. The past is tricky the past can be proven, people can be proven to be right or to be wrong or to be more right or less wrong or whatever. Um, and as um, C.S. Lewis says, you can't change it. I guess the future is, um, I'm going to say this word a little bit reluctantly, but empowering and the past can be disempowering because it relies on recollections and information and so on. Uh, and mediation is future-focused. Whenever uh, a mediation gets a little bit um, tense, and usually that's the worst it would get is a little bit tense, it's very often to do with someone having referred to the past 
And what I tend to say, if someone says, well, it wasn't fair the time that you sold the car without telling me, then I will hop in and say something like, uh, what sorts of things would work for you if a major piece of household item is to be is up for possible sale or something like that and just shift it from didn't like what you did in the past to how would you like it to work in the future and straight away the tone changes in the room. Of course, the past is informing the, you know, informing the present, but I have to say that possibly my Canadian background, as I often think about the way the past um, impacts on the separation, is sometimes it is like a bear claw around your ankle. You just cannot move on. Yes, yeah. And, you know, the past is vital and history, our histories are vital. However, we have research shows very selective memories and if life is tough as it is during separation and the time leading up to separation and the time following separation, you're likely to emphasise your tough recollections. And when life is going smoothly, you're likely to emphasise your smooth recollections. So, yeah, the, part, the past is a tricky element of all of this. Finally, Margaret, if you had one piece of advice or had to name one resource that you believe would be helpful to separating adults, including the discussion of the place in the past in mediation, what would that that be, that resource or tip, that piece of advice? Well, you know, mediators are known for not giving advice. In other words, not giving substantive advice, but we give a lot of procedural advice. Um, So the word advice is a tricky one for me. I think I have a resource in mind and I'll mention that. In terms of advice, I think I would say that remember any time that you ask a question that can be answered by a no or a yes, about 50% of the time the question will be answered with a no, just statistically speaking. So asking a question that can be answered with a no or a yes, you know, will you take the kids to the beach this afternoon, is half the time going to get a no and yet we get so indignant about no. If, on the other hand, you can say, what are your thoughts about what the kids and you might do this afternoon, I don't know what you'll get as an answer. It won't be a no. It's full of a lot more possibilities. It is, it is, and therefore a lot more likelihood of having a solution. So my suggestion would be ask a question that asks for a range of answers. And my excellent resource, there are numerous, I'm um, thinking of the raisingchildren.net.au website, which um, is up-to-date encouraging, just as deep as you need without being shallow or too deep and um, eminently readable. I agree with that research. It's excellent. I refer to that quite often. Margaret, thank you so much for talking to me today. I know what you've shared is just a tip of the iceberg of your mediation knowledge. And for anyone who wants to know more, they could visit your website, which is HDR, standing for Hull Smith Dispute Resolution, hdr.net.au, or follow you 
on Twitter. And as I said, that Twitter account is very positive, especially if you're going through the separation journey. Well, I'm really pleased to hear that, uh, that, that you read it as positive. That um, puts a smile on my face. Thanks so much, Margaret, for talking to me today. And thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if something in the episode has motivated you, I recommend that before you take any action, you get professional advice because the conversations are general in nature and not based on your particular situation. Please reach out to me if you have any questions or if there's another topic you'd like explored. And if you know someone who might benefit from the show, remember to tell them about it or suggest my Instagram or website, www.theseparationfix.com. Good luck being your best self today. Just know I'm out there too, trying as well.